Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been there. I love the entertainment business. Done that. And being hired by a company called Carroll Co. Pictures. And that. The night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous people. experience with Orson Welles. Barbara Streisand. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's As talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? In addition to all the other hats Roger Smith has worn, he was also a frequent contributor to a number of publications. You remember magazines like Playboy, Esquire, and Variety? But it all began with a fortune that didn't pay a fortune. As usual, Roger is in the right place at the right time. Yes, it's a party. So I started out by asking, when was the first time someone said, give me 500 words on, I don't know, the state of the economy? It was actually probably, as I think about it, closer to 50 words, because it's 1965, Christmas of 1960, shortly before Christmas, I'm maybe around Thanksgiving, I'm at a party in New York, and I meet a, a woman who's at the point, uh, one of the queens of New York named Geraldine Stutz. She was the president of Omri Bendel, which was then the number one fancy women's store. And she but was- nothing to do with Stutz, the cars, the- No, the, no, okay. no, no, And she had taken Bendel's, which had been a slightly tired, rich old lady store and made it the hot fashion place. And so she was quite, quite a celebrity. And at a cocktail party that I have no idea how I got there, but some way I'd wormed my way in. She's telling people, this is a couple of months before Christmas, that she's doing a special Christmas boutique at Bendel's of funny little gifts, like novelty items. And one of them she's come up with is going to be a very handsome large tin of very fancy fortune cookies with very amusing fortunes. And she says to this group of rich people plus one poor college student, and I'm afraid, you know, I, I want you to people to submit them. I'm afraid I'm going to only pay $10 a fortune. Well, everybody else laughed and paid no attention. because they only. But to I, you, that seemed like a fortune. Exactly. Thank right. you very much, Bill. Perfect thing. I said, where do I sign up? <laughs> so the idea was to find witty, amusing things that were a version of Chinese fortunes. And I hesitate to say this, but the only one that I can remember that I put in, I ended up submitting about 30, and I got 10 bought, and I got $100, and that was a weekend in New York for me. And so- uh, one It's about five minutes in New York. Right now, now yes. <laughs> and there was, uh, the only one that I remember was that what I got was a book of quotations, and thought, how can I 
make some very minor change in a, in a well-known quotation to mm -hmm. make it into something reasonably witty. And I came up with, a fool and his money are soon partied. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That, that worked. Yes. Yeah. So I was thrilled when I got Ten my bucks. Boom. Uh, boom. <laughs> got my hundred dollars. Uh, I'm glad I don't remember the others because they probably weren't anywhere near as good. But, but that was your paid writing. That was for, my first yeah. time paid writing. Mm -hmm. Now it's only a year later, and I'm in my now in my senior year at Harvard, and my very good friend to this day. Uh, I spoke to him three days ago, John Barrent who went on to fame as the writer of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, right. which is in the process, by the way, being now turned into a Broadway musical. I went, really? I went to a run through, well, it's a little grim, but uh, gay murders, you know, it, there's, there's, there's audience for that, yeah. Gotta dance. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, John was now a very junior but rising editor at Esquire. And he called up and he said, Roger, I said, I need ideas for articles and something. Um, he said, you know that used clothing store in Central Square in, in Boston, in Cambridge, that you go to? Is, they, is there a story there? And I said, well, it's called Max Keezer's. And it is a fantastic place because slightly impoverished Harvard students who wanted to look like they were well-to-do would go there and buy the cast-off suits of the Boston gentry who had either sold them or donated them to charity or whatever, and you could for $40 or $30 buy a suit made by a very fine tailor. Or a Harris Tweed jacket. Or a Harris Tweed jacket, very big, big on those, absolutely. And so that's how we got our clothes because uh, the new things we could afford we didn't like and the new things we liked we couldn't afford, uh -huh. but the old things were great. And I said, by the way, he has a brother named Joe Keezer who has a shop in New Haven, so we can make it a Harvard-Yale story. Oh. John, the perfect editor, said, well, is there one in Princeton? Because Harvard-Yale-Princeton would be ideal. I said, I don't know, I'll, I'll call, I have, one I have one friend at Princeton, I'll find out. He said, yes, the source in Princeton for used fine clothing is the Miss Fine's Princeton Country Day thrift shop, <laughs> where the local gentry donate their gently used clothes, mm -hmm. and you can get great things. So I go off, I think I had a $40 expense account to get, make the trip down to Princeton, and I go and I examine it, I take notes, but I also spot an item that I buy, which consists of a beautiful green sort of tweed jacket, a matching, vest, but no pants. So I buy the two-thirds of a suit. I think I can, I'll combine it with a pair of dark green uh, trousers. But I take it back to Boston to have it let out, because even though I was thinner then, I still mm -hmm. more often needed things let out than taken in. And I take it to Joe Rizzo, the tailor in Cambridge. He says, points to the suit, says, Mr. Roger, you do not believe this. I make it this suit in 1939. Oh my God. I said, really? I said, yeah. He shows me the label and it says J. Richardson Dilworth. Well, Dick Dilworth later became the mayor of Philadelphia and after that became the manager of the Rockefeller Brothers Money. He was most brilliant money manager and a charming old school gentleman. Silk degrees of separation. <laughs> or tweed. Okay. Tweed, yeah. 
So wait, he's got the fabric? He's like, I make the pants if you need no, pants? No, 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 no. Oh, I, okay. just, I just bought a pair of dark green oh, odd okay. trousers okay. that actually look better than I don't like three-piece suits uh, where everything matches. And so um, I now have that. That was 1965. We now and uh, wait, you write an article about this? Well, for he Esquire. says he says then so to write an article about it for Esquire about the three things, and I got paid five hundred dollars, which I thought was more money than, wow. than there was in the world. I was really thrilled about that. So that launched me on my quasi career. Most of my careers are quasi careers. Mm-hmm. But the, you're a published author. You haven't even graduated from Harvard. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, not quite as published as I'd hoped. It was written for Esquire, but he put it in something called the Esquire Good Grooming Guide, a, a separate publication, oh. and I felt deeply cheated, but I but I was happy with the $500, I promise you. We now go from 1966 to 1974. And I had gotten to know a wonderful person named Jeffrey Norman, who was the, an editor at Playboy. And John had recommended to him that I write something for Playboy about my supposed area of expertise, which was investments, finance, things like that. Because I was then about to end eight years of working on Wall Street. And so I met with him, and we settled on a subject that I would write about I said, I thought that the American banking system was on the verge of collapse. He said, well, that's a story. He said, can you document it? And I ended up going down to Washington and meeting with Andrew Brimmer, who was a, it's amazing the power of the press. If I had said I worked for the New York Times, I would expect to you see. I told him I'm writing for Playboy, and the head of the, one of the heads of the Federal Reserve is willing to meet with me. I was amazed. Andrew Brimmer was the first, I think, African-American on the Federal Reserve. Lovely, lovely man. We met, talked, etc. And so I now, over the summer of 74, write. They had told me they wanted 4,000 words. I, of course, wrote 8,000. In the meantime, I have gone to work for Warner Communications, the parent of Warner Brothers and Steve Ross, and they are going to pay me $2,500 for this piece, which even in those days, that was a very generous amount for, wow. a, for a freelance thing. And that was. And that. they're going to print all 8,000 words, or are they going to well, edit I it submi- down? Well, I, I submit it with telling them to edit it down. They don't take a word out. They run wow. the whole thing. And they did something, however, that was unfortunate for me. They put uh, a naked girl in it? No, they retitled it. Oh. Oh, no, that was the second piece. Sorry, the first piece was called Banks on the Brink, which was my title. But Steve Ross, I said, I'd better let my boss read it before it's published because I thought he might have a problem with Playboy. He had no problem with Playboy because we were the distributors for Playboy, <laughs> so we were perfectly happy with them. But he said... You're making negative remarks about the Bank of Boston, to whom we owe $100 million? Forget it. It's not running. I said, Steve, what if I wrote it under a pseudonym and there was no way to connect it to me? He said, well, if you tell me there's no way to connect it to you and to Warner, okay. So I call up... So you, Steve Ross. (laughs) Stephen J. Ross, yeah. I call up Jeffrey and I said, I want to do it under a pseudonym. He says, Roger... We have an absolute flat rule at Playboy. No pseudonyms. We pay for a writer's name. We want to get the name as well as the work. Boy. I said, Jeffrey, I'm nobody. 
Nobody knows who Roger Smith is, or if I'd known it, I would have said who the fuck Roger Smith is. <laughs> and therefore, you're not losing anything by not having my name. In fact, if you pretend that I am some highly placed person on Wall Street who dare not reveal his name, that's a better handle than who the hell is Roger Smith. I convince him. He now says, okay, so what's your pseudonym? Well, at that point, there was a very famous writer about finance, a humorous guy named George Goodman. Anyway, he wrote under the name of Adam, in quotes, Smith. Uh -huh. I said, he, told, he stole my pen name. That's what I should have been, Adam Smith. Well, I think further, and I call up Jeffrey, and I said, have you any suggestions? And he said, do you remember a television show in the 50s called The Millionaire? I said, yes, I do. I was, that's a, started watching TV. He said, well, it always opened with a man with a very sonorous voice saying, my name is Michael Anthony. I am powered by my employer, the eccentric billionaire, John Beresford Tipton, to give you this check for a million dollars. And over the next half hour, everyone in America was told how money only ruins your life and aren't you glad you're not rich. It was a very successful message. <laughs> So they never gave a million away? They talked people out of it? No, they gave it to them, and then you saw how it ruined their lives see, endlessly. So I said, oh, I love that. John Bears for Tipton. You know, I give people million-dollar advice. Uh -huh. He said, well, he comes back and says, our lawyer said we can't use it for copyright reasons. But however, we can use John B. Tipton. Huh. Well, to this day, if you see a review on Amazon by John B. Tipton, that's me. Ah. I said, I said, so I submit the piece on the banks, and they liked it very much. And then they next, now it's two years later, and again, I had assured Steve that my identity would never be revealed. And they actually gave me a column, which in their back of the book section, I could write about a four or five hundred word short piece on any financially related subject. And again, we're talking about Playboy. Back we're talking about Playboy, and Playboy. I'm talking about, I got 25. Did you ever meet half? No. Okay. Nor did I have any desire to. And, right. uh, I wanted to meet some of his friends, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in fact, when I lived in LA, I never got invited to the mansion. Uh, so I wrote the first piece, and it was well received. Then the second piece I, they wanted me to do was a general piece on the stock market. And I wrote a piece called Why You Lose Money in the Stock Market and went through the mistakes that people made, all of which I made myself and prevented me from becoming the plutocrat that I thought I was going to be. And it was basically a prescription that said, here's how you make money in the stock market. Hard work and patience. You just have to do real deep research identify two, three, or four companies that you see have really good prospects and watch them like crazy and sit back for three, four, five, eight years and see what happens. Well, Playboy loved the piece. They didn't edit a word out of it, even though it was like 2,000 words longer than they thought. But unbeknownst to me, they retitled it, How to Make Real Money in the Stock Market. And I said, Jeffrey, how can you do that to me? That's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. I, this is not some get-rich-quick scheme. Mm -hmm. It says to people, if you show real patience and real effort, you might do okay. But anyway, they ran it. It happened to run in the famous issue, one of the most famous issues of Playboy, that contained the Jimmy Carter interview, oh. where he said, I lust in my heart. 
Sure. So when it sold more than any copy of Playboy ever had, I said, called Jeffrey and said, see what my article did? <laughs> and he said, see, we changed the title. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So then they gave me this column, and I had such respect for professional writers that I felt, as I often feel in my life, that I'm a borderline fraud. I'm just kind of slightly getting by when I should, somebody any moment's gonna find me out for the, for the faker that I am. Were you the Ann Landers of finance? Were people asking you questions? Well, or you just that's interesting you say that. In the article on how to make real money in the stock market, as they titled it, I actually, at that point, I called three of the smartest people I knew on Wall Street who would accept my invitation to lunch. Uh, there were probably smarter ones who wouldn't, but I, these three very lovely people, all of them. Two of them are dead and one of them was George Soros. So George Soros, a lovely man named Warren Manchel, who I've spoken of before, and the third person was someone named um, Jacques Lévion. Uh, my mother, who's born Levin, when I introduced her to Jacques Lévion, who was Russian Jewish, but had lived in France before coming to America, she didn't make him terribly happy by saying, Lévion, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> <laughs> She had a sharp tongue like the entire family. <laughs> you're in a column and you're... Oh, I guess they get, they get the column. And so, as I say, I have such... The first column I spent 30, 40 hours on getting the perfect 800 words. And each month after that, it went to 10 hours. Finally, I whipped one out in, in 30 minutes. And finally, I found they, they rejected one. I'd reached the point where my sloppiness had, had met their, their minimal standards. Right. But the idea that I began my career as a freelance writer, essentially, forget the Esquire thing, published by Playboy and getting top dollar, uh, I, I loved it. Uh, and I loved the idea of being, being a writer, which stick, stuck in my mind as a, um, not a profession for me, but a, a, a sideline. Uh -huh. And the next time that this really came into any serious play is, we're now talking the late 1990s. I have left Hollywood as a working executive in the industry back in New York, and I have breakfast with Peter Bart. Peter Bart was a longtime editor of Variety right. and is mainly famous. He's one of those people who's called, he's called a legend in his own mind. <laughs> Um, and Peter will tell you at the drop of any hat that how 60 years ago he championed the Godfather when he was a mid-level mid executive at Paramount, and that's not incorrect, that's true. He so, worked with Robert Evans. Yes. Evans was profiled by Bart in, right. a, in an article, and... The kid Evans, stays in the picture. Evans, the kid who stays in the picture, hires Bart and they start pouring through scripts and, and, and in fact, The Godfather was, is one of them. Was, was one of them and uh, it's like when you see somebody who shows you their brilliant art collection full of Warhols and Lichtensteins, I say, let me see what's in the basement because the mistakes always go into the basement. So every movie person remembers their successes right. and Love doesn't, story. Yeah, doesn't remember their failures. Chinatown, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, blah, yeah. blah. So he, but he's now publishing, he's back publishing Variety. Yes, he's back, he, Variety, Variety. variety. He's, the, he's the editor and I think he's like a co-publisher. And I was complaining to him, I said, Peter, 
can't Variety hire one writer who understands business? I know it's called show business, right. but you only hire people who care about the show part, not the business part. A simple thing they could do is learn the difference between gross and net. They keep saying this picture made $100 million. No, it didn't. It grossed right. it. So he said, look, smartass, why don't you do a guest editorial? From that came his offer to me to do a column, which he said, you can just, you don't have no schedule, submit whenever you want. And I talked to a very wonderful friend of mine to this day, a writer named David Margolik. And he said, don't do that. He said, set a set schedule or else you'll never get around to it. You'll have other things in your life. Mm -hmm. So I promised him it would be a bi-weekly column, twice a month. And now we had a problem. He said, we have to come up with a name for your column. He said, how about the Roger Report? I said, well, in addition to being boring, it sounds like it's a review, an, a British review of extramarital sex, uh, since they call rogering what we call screwing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. Know that, right. Well, I was once told by someone in England that about someone's name was mentioned, they said, he likes to roger chaps. And I didn't know what they meant by that. I later found out. <laughs> and so anyway, we now come up with this discussion. And I said, let me think about it. And I come up with, it's only money as a way of letting Hollywood know that you may think you're interested in art, but I know better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know what you care about. And it's only money you're talking about. It's, it's, you, it is, you, exactly. So it, it had that. And uh, so that was it. And I did the column for about two years and had just enormous fun picking occasional people and companies to laud and frequent companies to point out that the uh, emperor has very little clothes on. <laughs> I am most proud of the fact that IMAX was riding high around 2001, mm -hmm. and I wrote a column that took their accounting to shreds and the stock went in one month from 25 to six. Wow. A couple of friends of mine who said, who ran a hedge fund said, why didn't you call me and tell me you were gonna run it? I said, well, one, I didn't know it was gonna happen, and two, I think it would be slightly dishonest for me to give you that piece of information in advance. I could have told you the minute after it hit print, maybe. IMAX, by the way, at that time, probably growing, right? They were building more. I, IMAX has been growing forever, and if you bought the stock 40 years ago, you're still behind. <laughs> IMAX is run by people who have no interest whatsoever in the shareholders. They just pay themselves a great deal of money, brag about how much their gross goes up, and hope you'll overlook the fact that the bottom line is very skinny. Oh, okay. Uh, Gelfond is his That's name. the big picture on IMAX. That's the big picture, right. And it continues this day. I mean, the, we all know how much IMAX has expanded from, you know, from four museums 30 years ago right, to everywhere in the world. To the number one grossing right. theater in the country, which is on if, Broadway. If, right. If I, were if I were to look at the stock price, I don't think it's gone up in 30 years. Wow. Okay. Because I learned years ago, it's the honesty of the management is more important than the quality of the product. A quality product, which IMAX has, with a management only interested in, in lining their own feather beds, ain't gonna make you much money. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. 
All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.